Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. I say this calls for action, and now, nip it in the bud. Well, what I do is uh, I look a woman up and down, and I say, Hey, how you doing? And hey, how are you doing, everybody? Jim McCarron's here with the good, the bad, and the TV on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? If you do, subscribe to us and then rate the shows on iTunes. You can find us there or your other favorite directories like Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find us at Believe.com and, of course, on the Twitter. Use at Believe Podcasts. And if you'd like some info on advertising on this or any Believe show, please reach out to Believe at Believe.com. It's that simple. You got to believe. Now let's believe in the good, the bad, and the TV. The year is 1974. Nixon resigns, Ford assumes and pardons, Patty Hearst disappears, and Skylab falls. 1974 sees the first edition of People magazine, the first horror novel from Stephen King. It's Carrie. The introduction of the Rubik's Cube, a killer typhoon in Darwin, Australia, and a range of movie releases that runs the gamut from Godfather 2 and Blazing Saddles to The Towering Inferno and Foxy Brown. Hank Aaron ties Babe Ruth's home run record and then exceeds it in 1974. It happens in Atlanta on April 8th in front of a sellout crowd. Sadly, the guy and his family get death threats for doing it. Lovely, right? In 1974, the Lucille Ball sitcom Here's Lucy goes off the air, and with it, a mighty record falls. Because in one form or another, in three successive TV sitcom hits, Lucille Ball has been on TV for 23 straight years, dating back to I Love Lucy in 1951. That's the infancy of TV. And on a Saturday night in September of 1974, a TV movie airs on NBC, that announces we're not in Lucy's TV world anymore anyway. As the 1970s proceeded, writes Elena Levine in her book Wallowing in Sex, the new sexual culture of 1970s American television, the made-for-TV movie was quickly becoming a major site for television's representation of sex and a major focus of regulatory inquiry. One movie in particular would feature strongly in the TV industry's main effort self-regulation. End quote. The movie is Born Innocent. Linda Blair stars. She's the actress who's just been nominated for an Oscar for playing the possessed 14-year-old at the center of The Exorcist. In Born Innocent, she portrays a different kind of troubled teen, the rebellious kind, who ends up a ward of the court, sentenced to a girl's detention center in a last-ditch effort to scare her straight. But man, talk about scary. 30 minutes into the film, she's gang-raped by her fellow female teen inmates, pinned to the tile floor of a communal shower, and violated with the handle of a plunger. Even by present-day standards, the intense and graphic and endless scene is difficult to watch. I showed it when I was teaching a college course in 2015, and the students couldn't get through it. They said it didn't even belong on television then. In 1974, it causes a seismic national uproar with shockwaves of outrage and protest across the country. Young people's exposure to deviant sexual violence was at the heart of the protest, notes Levine in her book. But, she goes on, it was more than just one movie at the heart of the reaction. It was everything. 
Born Innocent just gave people something specific to focus on. End quote. And that so-called everything is what TV has become for so many since All in the Family arrived three years earlier in 1971 to change the rules about TV content. Three years after that satiric sitcom's hate speech and its exploration of adult topics, two years after sitcom lead Maud's abortion and the first TV movie about a gay romance called That Certain Summer, one year after PBS, PBS, aired Steam Bath, complete with nudity, which questioned the very existence of God, the word rang out, enough. Enough of the R-rated situations. Enough of the violence. Enough of the coarse language. Enough of the liberal attitudes. Enough of the material against which children's eyes and ears must be shielded. Just enough. Special interest groups set the TV industry in their crosshairs, and they got attention from those outside it. The result? The Federal Communications Commission, or the FCC, the government agency that oversees broadcast television, steps in, and the family viewing hour comes out. It's a new policy mandating that the first hour of the prime time schedule every night is to be set aside for so-called family-friendly programming, effective with the start of the 1975-76 TV season. Parenthetically, I should note that the new policy was actually a construct that came out of a labyrinthine maze made up of the FCC, the Industry Code of Practices Department of the National Association of Broadcasters, and the presidents of all three networks. The family viewing hour was met with immediate pushback in the television business, which was financially and artistically threatened by its mandate, if not just put off by the interference. TV writers in particular viewed the new regulation as one that violated their artistic expression, and consequently one that affected their abilities to earn a living. The negative reaction from Hollywood's rank and file was loud and fierce. It fought back, even as the family hour rolled out. Fighting both for survival and on free, free, free speech principles, writers and producers were merciless in their attacks on and mockery of what they saw as, as a ham-handed, politically motivated government effort to curb creativity with labeling and by self-important declarations that the country's children needed a so-called safe haven at night when they sat down to their TVs. Chief among the protesters is Norman Lear, who sees the new policy as an infringement on creative freedom as guaranteed by the First Amendment. Together with the Writers Guild of America and other industry organizations, Lear, who is the producer, of much of TV's top programming, including the number one show, All in the Family, files suit. In short, in the fall of 1976, the family viewing hour was declared null and void by the district court, effective with the following 1977 TV season. The family hour is likely headed to null and void status before it even begins anyway, as beyond the token relocation of a few high-profile series to appease the attention-seeking waivers of decency flags, there was no real logic to the mandate, nor was there a clear way to enforce it. Exactly what makes a show family-friendly viewing? Who decides? How do they penalize those who violate it? But the ruling makes its point, I guess. It's really about more than TV in a way. It's about changing times, generational differences, government outreach, government overreach, parental outrage, good intentions, bad judgment, and a plunger. Not to mention fear. Though it invokes an actual need for accountability, it isn't based on any kind of reality, nor is it really thought out very fully. For those who live through it, 
The family hour is and always will remain the default joke to be heard in the TV industry circles when the conversation and the question turns to TV going too far. As for the film that started it all, the shower scene that led to TV being scrubbed clean, TV being TV, NBC rebroadcasted a year later in October of 1975, just weeks into the start of the so-called family viewing hour mandate. Insert LOL here. The offending rape sequence was edited out, though, and the film itself aired outside the family hour, beginning at 9 p.m. All these years later, So Connected is born innocent to derision that the film has seldom been broadcast anywhere since the 1970s. Spoiler alert, it's also just plain not good. That it also led to a real-life crime and then a real-life court case. Ten days after it aired, a nine-year-old girl was gang-raped with a soda bottle by a group of minors who later confessed they were inspired to commit the act by Born Innocent probably hasn't helped. By the way, in 1981, in the case of Olivia versus the National Broadcasting Company, NBC is held not liable for that attack. Born Innocent changes TV as a commercial medium, leading to government intervention and in the process spotlighting the strength of citizen advocacy. But the industry has faced issues related to and accusations of violence since it began. It doesn't just start in Sandy Hook in 2012, though it sure as hell should have ended there. For decades, the television industry has been under social and legislative microscope for its perceived levels of programming, violence, and the potential influence of such on viewers. The issue dates back as far as The Untouchables, the Tommy Gunn-friendly crime drama of the late 1950s that many see as both ultraviolent in particular and not in the new medium's best interest as a whole, after the assassination of President John Kennedy in 63, and then again in the wakes of the shooting deaths of Senator Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., both in 1968. Television comes under further and more aggressive scrutiny, with studies commissioned and debates exchanged in Hollywood, on the streets, among politicians, on the subject of how much violence on TV is too much violence, and what, if any, are its effects. No less an authority than the U.S. Surgeon General enters the maelstrom. The most tangible effect of this late 1960s introspection? In 1969, the CBS Western The Wild Wild West is canceled. Take that, Sirhan Sirhan. Violence on TV is an issue that gets new wind under its sails every five years or so, well into the present-day era of Sandy Hook. Lots of talk, very little action. Who, me? Nothing to see here. Once, though... TV itself does actually go on trial. It begins on June 4th, 1977, in Miami Beach, where in a bit of a teenage dare, Ronnie Zamora and 14-year-old friend Daryl Agrella break into the empty house of Zamora's 82-year-old neighbor, Eleanor Haggart. They go about ransacking and stealing from the house. When Haggart comes home unexpectedly and interrupts the crime in progress, Zamora, using a gun the pair found among the woman's things, shoots and kills her after which the two teens resume burglarizing and then finish off by stealing Haggard's car. Then they drive to Disney World. Zamora and Agrella are soon arrested and charged with murder. During Zamora's trial, the 15-year-old is tried as an adult. Defense attorney Ellis Rubin blames television for the teenager's actions. Specifically, he cites the excessive amounts of violence on television that Zamora has been exposed to since a child, leading to, quote-unquote, prolonged, intense, involuntary, subliminal television intoxication. To make his case, Rubin, a politician turned full-time lawyer whose specialty was working on behalf of the quote-unquote 
poor and powerless who don't have a voice and who'd already achieved a level of renown in the early 70s as the lawyer who'd taken on the NFL and its local blackout policy, subpoenas Telly Savalas, the star of the popular Kojak police series. That's one of Zamora's favorite shows. All the while, Florida Supreme Court has also recently approved the use of cameras in the courtroom. Described at the time as unconventional, um, Rubin would later use nymphomania in his defense of a woman arrested for prostitution, uh, if that sort of sums up his approach to the law. With what becomes known as the Kojak trial, the television business itself is put on trial, in the national headlines and on the front pages in a way it has never been before. Rubin's TV intoxication defense of Ronnie Zamora holds that years of TV watching, specifically police shows, and especially Kojak, has caused a blurring of the lines in Zamora's eyes between what is real and what is not, between fantasy and reality. That through the excessive and long-continued use of this intoxicant, a mental condition of insanity was produced, quote-unquote. The lawyer brought in mental health experts to testify on the influences of TV violence and on the application of a social learning theory that holds that children can learn what they see and can develop conditioned reflexes as a result. This reflex, Rubin argued, is what led to Zamora shooting Haggard. It was a theory refuted by prosecution experts. The defense's attempt to make TV violence part of the trial was repeatedly rejected by presiding judge Paul Baker, too, according to a 1977 report in the Washington Post. Inside and outside the courtroom, Rubin's strategy was ridiculed. The actual defense, by the way, was insanity. Kojak star Telly Savalas, for his part, was ultimately released from having to testify. Ronnie Zamora was found guilty of murder and sentenced to life in prison, with added years for the related charges of burglary and assault. He appealed his conviction, blaming Ellis's unconventional and derided defense. But in 1987, a federal appeals court upholds the conviction. He serves 27 years before being released in 2004, at age 42. Upon his release, he's deported to his native Costa Rica. Daniel Agrella received three life terms, by the way, for second-degree murder, robbery, and burglary. He served seven years. Upon the conclusion of the Kojak trial, wrote Eugene S. Robinson in a 2017 40th anniversary reflection for Ozzy.com, TV saw the 1970s, now awash in congressional hearings, national PTA resolutions, academic studies, and the American Medical Association pegging television violence as an environmental hazard pulls back from overwhelmingly violent televised content, end quote. At least for a few minutes, anyway. Nonetheless, the voice of accountability has now been raised to its loudest level. In an interview he gave two years before his death in 2006, Ellis Rubin said, I regret that the defense didn't work. And if I was allowed to introduce that today, there would have been a different result. Maybe. But thanks to his innovative approach to a murder defense, as well as a 12-month Florida experiment called Cameras in the Courtroom, the television revolution continued in 1977. It was, in every sense, a revolution that was being televised. Tom Shales writes in the Washington Post in October 1987, on the eve of the trial, If Ronnie Zamora's lawyer has his way, Ronnie Zamora will be the first person in history to be found not guilty of murder by reason of television. Hard to believe, ain't it? Thank you for listening to Believe. 
You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.